Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the massive military deployment of Russian forces poised and surrounding the two biggest cities in Ukraine, Kyiv and Kharkiv, and speak with William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative works has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years and also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, we'll discuss his article at Newsweek, Shocking Lessons U.S. Military Leaders Learned by Watching Putin's Invasion. Then we'll speak with Thomas Nichols, a contributing writer and author of the Peacefield Newsletter at The Atlantic and a former U.S. Naval War College University professor, who previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. The author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and the forthcoming book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy, we will discuss his latest article at The Atlantic, How Should the United States Respond to Putin's Nuclear Provocation? Then finally, ahead of tonight's State of the Union address by President Biden, we will speak with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He's the author and editor of nine books, most recently The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and he is quoted in an article at Courthouse News, Will the State of the Union be Biden's Ich bin ein Ukrainian? And before we go to our first guest... Since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and a reporter for 30 years, and he also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, Shocking Lessons U.S. Military Leaders Learned by Watching Putin's Invasion. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. 
Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And what are the generals in the Pentagon and the intelligence people learning here from what seems to be a somewhat faltering invasion on the part of the Russians? Well, after almost a month of preparations against a nation that's on the borders of Russia, against forces that we attribute as being some of the strongest in the world, what has been observed is essentially that the Russians have completely faltered on the ground. Uh, their offensive, which began on next last Thursday, uh, mostly with the air and missile barrage, but also with some movement on the ground of Ukrainian forces entering, uh, of Russian forces entering Ukraine from three different directions. Uh, what we've seen is these forces have largely stalled and uh, the conventional military ground forces of Russia have essentially proven to be un 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 not up to the task. And, uh, and, and ironically, though, we see an escalation in the last 24 hours or so of missile strikes and of more long-range artillery strikes against Ukraine's two largest cities, uh, the ground forces have pretty much uh, been stalled uh, since uh, since uh, Saturday, and um, whether the Russians are merely regrouping, uh, resupplying, we know now that the force at the front is uh, short on fuel, ammunition, and even food, uh, or whether or not this is part of a Russian strategy, we don't know at this point, but the expectations that everyone had that Ukraine would be quickly taken over have certainly been dashed, and that has enormous implications for U.S. military strategy and national security policy in the future. Well, I would think that the main implication or the main concern, surely, William Arkin, is that if things go really bad for Putin, he could get more desperate. Well, there's no question that at this point, with the large number of forces, I think more than two-thirds of the Russian force that was mobilized outside Ukraine, now inside the country, and with uh, damage uh, escalating significantly in the past 24 hours, that the Russians are fully uh, engaged in Ukraine, that there's no way in which they're going to have a graceful withdrawal um, and uh, so it seems to me, in fact, that if the Russians are still unable to take major cities inside Ukraine and the Ukrainians continue to mount the valiant defense that they have been mounting, uh, that Putin is going to have a bit of a backup against the wall. And as most people know, uh, he made a nuclear threat on Saturday, uh, one in which he said that he was increasing the alert of his nuclear forces. We haven't seen any actual movements yet, but I think that people in the military who might have originally taken this threat as being not very serious now are beginning to see that Putin's nuclear threat may in fact have been his own reaction to the failure of his conventional forces. And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, who is one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC news analyst and a reporter for 30 years, and also served in Army intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War, and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, 
Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defence Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, Shocking Lessons U.S. Military Leaders Learned by Watching Putin's Invasion. So the military punch, you know, they, much is being made of this 40-mile-long convoy outside of Kiev, and they're starting to use rockets and cruise missiles and one exploded in the in a square in front of a government building in Kharkiv and killed a bunch of civilians. So already there'll be more civilian casualties. There have been calls for war crimes trials against Putin. Today, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, addressed the European Parliament by video asking to be admitted into the EU. So China apparently is also offering up its services ready to play a role in a Ukrainian ceasefire. I don't see any ceasefires on the horizon to you. It seems like Putin's really doubling down. Well, yesterday, uh, Russian and Ukrainian officials met at the Belarus border. And in fact, Ukraine did request an immediate ceasefire. Uh, It wasn't like that the Russians completely rejected such a uh, suggestion on the part of Ukraine, but uh, and they're scheduled to meet again. So the mere fact that Russia was willing to sit down with Ukrainian uh, mil- uh, government officials tells me that 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 they're not achieving as much as they hope to achieve. And in fact, that's what I'm hearing from intelligence watchers on the U.S. side that in fact the Russians anticipated uh, much more progress and uh, far quicker results and have now themselves been sent back to the drawing board to figure out what they want to do. Um, There's no particular evidence at this point that the Russians are intentionally attacking civilian targets. And in fact, that attack in uh, Krakow that you mentioned uh, was an attack on a regional administration building, a a government building. And though one might question what the point of such an attack on a government building might be, uh, what we're seeing as the as the Russian forces uh, come more towards the center of these large Ukrainian cities, uh, Kiev with uh, the capital with um, over two million people, uh, uh, Krakow, the the second largest city in Ukraine with over a million and a half. What we're seeing is a greater and greater uh, damage to civilian. Uh, installations and and housing because uh, the war is coming closer and closer to these city centers. So a lot of what you're seeing in the news media up to this point is probably an overestimation of where Russia actually is on the ground. Um, But we are seeing this escalation as a result of missile and artillery strikes, and that escalation is causing more civilian damage. Uh, Certainly more has been caused in the last uh, 24 or 48 hours than in the first 24 or 48 hours. And also we're seeing uh, not very much use of the Russian Air Force. And I imagine as they uh, play more of a role in the, in the war, uh, we'll also see an increase in, uh, in uh, collateral damage and civilian damage as a result of, of more and more airstrikes. It's not clear at this point why the Russian Air Force hasn't been more engaged um, again, I think it was more that the 
Russian military anticipated that their ground invasion would go much faster and that, in fact, they would take more territory. Uh, but at this point, that convoy north of Kiev, the, the capital city, uh, is pretty much stalled and has been stalled for about 48 hours. Uh, there is fighting inside the capital, but it's mostly between Ukrainian forces and airborne and, and Russian special operations forces. So a bridge has not been yet created on the ground uh, between Belarus and, and the Ukrainian capital. And really, we don't see uh, the kind of ground movement that one would have thought one would see in, in, in taking a, a country and trying to occupy it. The Russians have really bogged down, and there's no evidence that that's changing uh, as we move into the sixth day of this, of this invasion. So if the next stage is, will be the siege of the capital and house-to-house -house fighting, that could go on for a long time, right? Well, it could go on for a long time, Ian. But again, if what you assess on the part of the Russians when they're looking at their own army is that they're not up to the task, that the conscripts uh, are not uh, well-trained and have never fought in combat, that there's low morale, that the supply lines are tentative and they're not able to push sufficient amounts of fuel, ammunition, and food to the frontline forces then engaging in a street-to-street -street battle is a losing prospect. Uh, I imagine that we'll much more see a surrounding of the capital city uh, and, more, uh, and more bombardment from outside the city into the pockets of uh, Russian uh, forces that are able to penetrate into the city center. Uh, right now, we're not really seeing that, and we are seeing increasing strikes upon some of the civil infrastructure that serves military purposes, such as there was an attack on a gigantic TV tower in, in Kiev today. And we see some other indications of increasing attacks on uh, both electrical power and the telecommunications infrastructure. But it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that the Russians will want to risk uh, going into the city itself. And in fact, what we've really seen in six days of Russian fighting is that the Russians have been very risk averse, maybe not risk averse to the civilian population of Ukraine, but they've been very risk averse themselves. And I think they've been stunned uh, by the level of uh, casualties that they've taken. We, we now believe that there are over 4,000 Russian military deaths in, in, in six days uh, in this invasion. And if that number holds up, well, that's a really significant number when we're talking about, say, for instance, a comparison with the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, when in the first 21 days until those forces reached Baghdad, there were all of approximately, I don't know, 50 U.S. deaths. Well, can the Russians then take Kiev with the Spetsnaz, the special forces, and the Wagner group, the mercenaries, which apparently are also in there, often dressed in Ukrainian army uniforms, looking for Zelensky and other high-value targets? Well, there certainly was uh, the case that airborne forces and special operations were airlifted into Kiev in the opening salvo of the war on last Thursday and Friday. 
Uh, there's no particular proof that the Wagner Group has been operating in there, though there has been some social media chatter about it. I think the Pentagon at this point is denying that there are any Russian mercenaries on the ground, and they don't have any reason to uh, to lie about that. Um, but I do I do think that uh, that you know, look, we're talking about a country that is really mounted in a, a spectacular defense, and it, it, and at this point, it's a it's a civilian war as much as it is a military war. The Ukrainian people are are fully engaged, and we have not just the Ukrainian military, but the National Guard of Ukraine, the National Police of Ukraine. Uh, it, it's all been formed into one gigantic defense. Uh, I don't think the Russians, in being rational, would look at Kiev and decide that they want to fight door to door. I think that would be a losing battle. So again, I imagine that they're going to halt on the outskirts of the central city and hope to be able to uh, do damage to the Ukrainian government's command and control, and possibly, if they're even seeking to do so, to kill uh, President Zelensky and other high officials. But I, I, I just don't see, I, I just don't see the Russians quickly being able to take either of these two major cities in Ukraine. And I think that they're in the process of revising their own strategy, perhaps even keeping Russian ground forces out of these cities in order to make them uh, more susceptible to exterior bombing and missile and artillery strikes without friendly fire on, on the part of Russian forces. So I think in the next two or three days, we're going to see many more uh, heavy weapons being used in escalatory uh, bombing of Ukraine, not just from the air, but from missiles as well, uh, and artillery. Uh, but I don't particularly see the Russians all of a sudden being able to uh, to uh, effectively uh, uh, regroup their ground forces and, and be more effective on the ground than they already haven't been. So just in the last couple of minutes then, William Arkin, you mentioned this is a civilian war. There was some extraordinary footage of Ukrainian civilians, some holding Ukrainian flags, confronting Russian soldiers in the south. And that seems to me a portent of how this could really undo Russian morale, particularly if at the end of the day there's going to be some kind of occupation. Do you think that's going to be the Achilles heel of both Putin and the Russian military? Well, whether it be in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, what we have learned in the last dec uh, two decades of, of perpetual war is that it's very hard to uh, occupy and pacify a country, uh, even when you're on the ground. And in this case, uh, we've really seen uh, a Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion that has been so nationalist in its fervor that not only does it speak to the lie that Russia is trying to propagate that Ukraine is an integral part of Russia, because clearly this is an independent nation with great pride and great nationalism, but also at the same time that even in the case of a country that's on Russia's border, I mean, Russia borders Ukraine. It, it, it has its own natural uh, lines of communications, lines of supply right to its forces directly, that managing a huge military force on the ground, supplying it and keeping it motivated when it's suffering 
a high degree of uh, casualties and also the enmity of the civilian population is a very is really an impossible task. I mean, there were a lot of people in Iraq who were in favor of the deposing of Saddam Hussein, but they were not in favor of an American military occupation, which is essentially what we we fell into uh, because we didn't ever consider what the end game was. I think Russia might have taken some lessons from that and now realizes that it needs to do more on the ground. But to tell you the truth, Ian, I wouldn't be surprised in the next week if we also did see a ceasefire and a freeze of forces, because at this point, maybe Russia will calculate that it's gotten as much as it can get and that perhaps it will earn some security guarantees from Ukraine and from NATO in exchange for the Russian withdrawal. This idea that somehow the Russian army is is going to swamp Ukraine and be able to take the country, let alone occupy it, I think is one that we now have to eliminate from our minds. So just in closing, you mentioned that the Russians are having problems with their supply chains. What kind of problems are the Ukrainians having? Because I know Zelensky was begging for weapons. He said, you know, send me ammo, don't send me a ride out of town. Finally, the Germans and others have changed their minds and they're sending arms in along with the United States. Are they getting to where they're needed? It appears that they are. In fact, yesterday there was news that Ukrainian pilots had gone to Poland to pick up Soviet-era aircraft and fly them back into Ukraine. Um, and we do see these anti-tank missiles, particularly the Javelin and the and the British version, the N-Law, uh, being delivered to Ukraine, and as well as additional Stinger surface-to-air missiles, which have already been successful in shooting down a couple of Russian helicopters. So, in fact, the resupply of uh, of Ukraine is going to be a, a key element of their being able to continue to mount this civil civilian defense, and and for the Ukraine military to continue to go go to, to toe to toe with the with the Russians, uh, if in fact Russia is able to cut that. Western supply line uh, from Poland uh, into um, Ukraine, then in fact, the Russians will have achieved a lot. But even there, they're still facing a country with a significant military and a significant national force. And so by no means do I think that uh, Ukrainian problems with supply are going to be greater than Russian problems with supply, surprisingly so. And so therefore, I think we're going to see a continuation of long-range bombing, a continuation of the surrounding of uh, the two major Ukrainian cities, and I think we'll see a slow Russian movement on the ground, but certainly not the kind of blitzkrieg that we imagined would happen when we were talking about what would happen if war in Ukraine had broken out. Well, William Arkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and a reporter for 30 years and also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, 
And he has an article at Newsweek, Shocking Lessons U.S. Military Leaders Learned by Watching Putin's Invasion. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the United States should respond to President Putin's nuclear provocation. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Nichols, who is a contributing writer and author of the Peacefield newsletter at The Atlantic. He's a former U.S. Naval War College University professor, and he also taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. And his latest article at The Atlantic is, How Should the U.S. Respond to Putin's Nuclear Provocation? Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Nichols. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Tom. And apparently Putin was watching the BBC or I don't know what channel he was watching, but somewhat like Trump, who watched television all the time. Putin apparently was watching television and the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, said something that wasn't particularly provocative. She said if the war goes bad, it could expand further and it could even affect uh, NATO countries. And then Peskov had a hissy fit and said that it was completely unacceptable, and Putin went to full nuclear alert. So what bothers me is that I'm not sure that the Crocus and Kasbah early warning systems that the Russians have from the Soviet days are much better than they were under the Russians. And we already had an incident, I think it was in September of 1983, where the Russians, or the system, the early warning system in the Soviet Union mistook some reflections of light off some clouds for five Minutemen missiles fired from the United States, and they have this sort of automatic dead hand that means you fire everything back. And fortunately, the dead hand was overridden by a Soviet colonel who thought if the Americans were going to attack, they'd fire the whole kitchen sink, not five Minutemen missiles. So he overrode the system save the world, and then he got demoted by the Soviet authorities. So has it gotten any better since then? There's a lot happening um, in there, Ian. It's not quite accurate. Um, First of all, the dead hand wasn't in existence then, and it wasn't on. Um, What happened was that uh, in the fall of 1983, there, there was an alert, and a lieutenant colonel named Petrov um, saw a launch, uh, an indication of a launch of a handful of missiles. And he simply, as a, you know, perfectly rational military officer, um, did not believe that the United States was going to start World War III with uh, a handful of missiles. Um, and he simply disbelieved that. And um, while he was commended for saving the world, he was also demoted for not following procedure. Or I wouldn't I not say demoted, but he was he was um, reprimanded about not following procedure. So it it was a terrible moment. But um, to come back now into the forty years later, um, yes, Russian command and control is a lot better. They've invested a lot more money into it. Their nuclear forces are a lot more modern. This was a source of concern for a lot of Americans. But as I said over the past twenty years, 
Um, you actually don't want a, a nuclear armed power with a rickety command and control system. So I, I was actually glad they were putting some money into that. Um, Putin did not go to a nuclear alert because of something the, the Brits said. Putin, this was, as I had written uh, last week, this was an expected, expected by me anyway, this was the, the play that I thought he would make, which, because he had done it before in 2014, um, he relies very heavily on Russia's nuclear status. It's part of how Russia punches above its weight in this new world. And um, I think the Biden administration did exactly the right thing by simply not responding to it and by not correspondingly raising um, our status. So I think um, at this point, the war is going badly for Putin, but he's going to commit a lot more force to it um, and commit some really heinous acts in, in Ukraine. And I think he may well be trying to draw the foul of some kind of NATO intervention to see if he can get out of this by making it a wider war um, with the West. But um, yes, things are more, are better than they were 40 years ago. The Russian system is more stable than it was um, 40 years ago. But you know, whenever you put nuclear forces on alert, you're increasing the chances of a mistake, which is why I'm glad ours aren't on a higher alert uh, in response. But there was under, when Yeltsin was in charge, the Cheget, the, the Russian equivalent of the football, was brought out because of a Norwegian research rocket that they thought was a Trident missile, didn't they? That's I mean, correct. Yes, they, the Norwegians launched a, launched a weather satellite, and in a classic screw-up, um, they had, you know, under international rules and custom, they had told the Russians, hey, you're going to see this thing, you know, launched and that we're putting up a weather satellite. And um, someone didn't get the message. And they said, we have this single launch of a missile from Norway. And uh, they they went to an alert and they brought Yeltsin, the, the Russian football. And he said, yeah, I'm not buying that. I don't think that's right. And um, um, again, you know, a lucky break. I mean, one of the one of the things we should have learned over the past 30 years is that we should have been um, reducing our, everyone should have been relying their, their, uh, reducing their reliance on nuclear weapons and on short fused alerts uh, that are left over from the Cold War a lot earlier. But, you know, here we are. So is the end game underway now, do you think, with Putin starting to pound Kharkiv and Kiev? I mean... I'm not no, sure. No... I, I thought maybe that he sent in his B team initially with a young conscript, but that's not the case. They, they just simply underestimated the resolve of the Ukrainians. Uh, they're doing better in the south, the Russians, largely because they're not being confronted by as many Ukrainian defenders. In fact, one of the things that I thought was really instructive, Tom, was footage of citizens in the south protesting in front of Russian soldiers holding Ukrainian flags and telling them to go home. Right. That seems to be a portent of what could happen, surely, if there's a an occupation, and presumably there will be an occupation at some point, do you think? Yeah, there's there's no end game here. I, I think Putin, um, this is my colleague at the uh, at the Atlantic, David French, um, just dropped a piece where he, he, you know, summed it up beautifully when he said a catastrophic intelligence failure. Uh, this is Putin in isolation. He's been basically in a bunker for two years, staying away from people because of COVID, um, you know, which is he doesn't really have close advisors that are 
you know, a wider circle of advisors that he used to have. He doesn't talk to people. And somehow he got it into his head that simply by walking into Ukraine, the whole thing, the whole Ukrainian government was just going to collapse and the Ukrainian army was going to surrender and the Russians were going to, you know, partition and reorganize the entire state of Ukraine. And that didn't happen. And now Putin has a war that he didn't count on and he, he doesn't quite know what to do with. Um, and so, you know, th there is no anyone who says they know what's going to happen in the next 10 days, much less the next 10 hours um, is lying. They, I don't think Putin knows that. I don't think we know that. Um, this is chaos. And I think, again, I suspect what Putin's going to do is the only thing he knows how to do, which is to go get a bigger hammer. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Nichols, who is a contributing writer and author of the Peacefield Newsletter at The Atlantic. He's a former U.S. Naval War College University professor, and he previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. And his latest article at The Atlantic is, How Should the U.S. Respond to Putin's Nuclear Provocation? But Tom, it seems to be more than an intelligence failure. It may be a failure of Putin's own mindset in as much as he seems to be delusional. He seems to think that one, he, that, the, that the Ukrainian people were begging for the Russians to liberate them from the Nazis. I mean, just today at a UN conference in Geneva, Lavrov addressed the conference by a video and almost the entire room, uh, Hall, walked out on him because he was saying that Ukraine is building a nuclear weapon. So do they make this stuff up or do they really believe it? Oh, they may. This is Lavrov, especially. I mean, both Lavrov and Putin are just, you know, walking relics of the Soviet era. And when when they run out of uh, other talking points. Now, Putin may believe it, but Lavrov, there's no way Lavrov is is dumb enough to actually believe that the Ukrainians are creating a nuclear weapon. But if you took all of this rhetoric out of Moscow for the past few days, you could basically scratch out Ukraine and you could write in West Germany and redate it about 1972. Um, this is basically the old Soviet playbook. You know, when they were prepping for war against West Germany and NATO, they'd say, well, they're developing nuclear weapons. They are Nazis. They are planning to attack us. Um, it's it's the only song they know how to sing. I mean, you know, Lavrov isn't I, I said Lavrov's not stupid enough to believe that, but Lavrov's not a genius either. Um, and this this is I don't think he believes what he's saying, but he doesn't know what else to say. Putin, on the other hand, may well have convinced himself that Ukraine is full of, you know, neo-Nazis who are plotting against him because I think he thinks the whole world is full of neo-Nazis who are plotting against him. Um, I think I think you're right to say that Putin has become delusional. I think he's insane. I don't think he's, you know, lost his ability to reason, but I think he is detached from reality. I don't think he's I don't think he's processing information and advice like a like a rational person. So does that make him more dangerous if things get worse for him? Of course, makes him immensely dangerous. Um, and, you know, there I have, you know, we have to hope that there are uh, cooler heads or more sensible people uh, walking around in Moscow. Um, but, you know, this is not a guy who handles humiliation well. I mean, one of the thing, one of the reasons he launched his war in, against Ukraine in 2014 was that he was, um, furious about his guy getting chased out of Kiev uh, um, in 2014, you know, and I, I think he's, 
he's he's already feeling the throes of humiliation now. I really look as an American. Let me limit my hubris here by saying Putin's not the first guy who ever made the will be greeted as liberators mistake. But I think in yeah, this case, I recall a, a something called the Iraq War. Yeah, well, you know, we we talked about cakewalks and you know that uh, that we'd be greeted as liberators. So, you know, I think, but for Putin to make this mistake, for the United States to make this mistake about people far away living under, you know, a, a hideous genocidal totalitarian dictator like Saddam is bad enough. For Putin to make this mistake about people across his own border, whom his own people know well, have, you know, travel with, intermarry, um, who he himself has basically said they are practically Russians, they are fellow Slavs, and of course, you, Ukrainians would would take issue with the this description of practically being Russians, but they are fellow Slavs. They are fellow um, Orthodox believers. They have they have lived in close proximity, intermarried, um, have extended family with each other. For Putin to somehow have come to the conclusion that marching the Russian army into all of this uh, would would lead them to you know throwing flowers in the streets, it, it, you know, really tells you how completely detached he is and what kind of really hideous um, advice he's been getting um, from a very small circle of people. Well, what I find though so disturbing is that it seems to me that much of the build-up to this war, the rhetorical build-up about NATO expansion eastward, is really not what really bothers Putin. What really bothers him is democracy and the rule of law. Yes. And he can't That's... afford to have that a successful <clears throat> experiment right up against his own borders. Isn't that what it's really about? In other words, yes. Putin offers gangster government, like Lukashenko in Belarus, who's now completely become a vassal, and for all intents and purposes, Putin has taken over Belarus, and now he can put his nuclear weapons in there. So is that what's really going on here, that this is about a kind of gangster who's got control of Russia through through the secret police and the Siloviki that surround him. And he simply can't afford to have the place next door with a fraction of Russia's resources become a much more successful state than Russia. And one of the main reasons Russia is not successful is it's being looted by Putin and his cronies. I, yes, the, the problem of having a, a 40 million Slavs practicing democracy on his doorstep is, is much more important than NATO. You know, NATO... Uh, created some of its own problem here by, um, in 2008, talking about Georgia and Ukraine eventually joining NATO, which, you know, again, I think more serious folks in Washington said, yes, I suppose one day in the out years, you know, far, far in the future. Um, but, the, but the Russians seized on this as a pretext when, in fact, um, I don't think there are very many people who really thought Ukraine um, was in any condition to join NATO or that NATO was really in any mood to to bring them in. Um, but for Ukraine to be a democracy, you know, to be facing westward rather than to be taking orders from Moscow, that was really intolerable. And you have to remember that Putin is a, a mafia boss and he lives in fear of falling the way that Gaddafi uh, fell and literally, you know, being dragged out in the street and torn to pieces by his own people. This is his greatest fear is a popular uprising that pulls him out of the Kremlin and, you know, hangs him by his heels. And he will do anything 
to prevent he this is one reason by the way that he's so tight with guys like Assad in Syria where he reaches out to these dictators like Assad and Lukashenko and others and says look I will I will always have your back I will never leave you you know out in the cold um, guys like us have to stick together and he is if you're one of the world's dictators Vladimir Putin is a guy who keeps his word um, you know, as a kind of honor among thieves thing. But um, that that's really what's been bothering him about this. And he's really worried that democracy, to, you know, I suppose in this time of pandemic, um, this is the apt metaphor, but that democracy is a virus that eventually will tr cross his borders and infect his own people. And he just can't have that. So less than the last couple of minutes, uh, Tom Nichols talk about the wannabe dictator here in the United States is making a comeback who controls the Republican Party. You wrote a piece a little while back on how the modern Republican Party resembles the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And the truth of the matter is that the, the comparisons are incredibly stark and real. The GOP and Putin's United Russia, their primary focus and priority is to take care of oligarchs. They're all about trolling. They're all about culture wars. And they're all about rewriting history. And it's happening here in the United States. And it could not be more stark to see the Ukrainians fighting and dying for democracy. And here in the United States, democracy is slipping through our fingers as massive uh, voter suppression is underway that would guarantee Trump could make a comeback in 2024. You just have to look what's happening today in the primary in Texas to see how thorough and cynical and brazen voter suppression is. So... This is what worries me is that, you know, for all of the support and jingoism going on about supporting Ukraine, the truth of the matter is that they're fighting for democracy. And in this country, it's slipping through our fingers. I wouldn't be so pessimistic about that yet, Ian. Um, you know, we are the, the analogy isn't as tight, I think, as as you've presented it. Um, and you know that I've been writing for five years that Putin is uh, that Trump. There's a Freudian slip uh, that Trump is a, a serious authoritarian threat to the Constitution of the United States. On the other hand, there are millions of people in state, local uh, and county governments. We are. This is where I hope people start to appreciate the, the miracle of American federalism, that even if Trump somehow uh, um um, cajoles his way into the hearts of undecided voters and somehow makes it back into the White House. I don't think he can do it through entirely through voter suppression. I'm much more worried that he'll have a House of Representatives made up of Republicans who will simply declare him the winner no matter what the vote says, um, but that there are 50 states and that, uh, you know, that we are not just one big centralized government that can fall to the whims of one man. We proved that the last time. Um, we're proving it again now. And but I I will say this: I hope that that many of the Republicans in elected office who support Trump, who is still praising Putin to this moment, that those same elected Republicans can feel at least one last molecule of shame about this and and decide that maybe this is finally the moment that they can walk away from Donald Trump um, and and re regain their, you know, despite all our differences, despite all our fights, regain their heritage as Americans rather than support a man who is openly siding with a dictator who is risking World War III in Europe right now. 
Well, even uh, Mitch McConnell, who clearly opposes Trump, he's blaming the Ukrainian war on Biden, saying that he's, he well, shows weakness. See, so that seems to are. me to that seems to me more likely the way the Republicans are going to spin it, not so much repudiating Trump, but trying to pin it all on Biden. And as it gets worse and we have more and more pictures of humanitarian suffering, I'm sure they'll pile on. Well, I, I guess the only thing you can say is that things that people say now are not things they are going to be able to unsay or forget about later. Yeah, well, I guess that applies to Tucker Carlson, right? <laughs> One he's, would hope. He's had to do a bit of mea culpa. I thank you for joining us, Tom Nichols. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Nichols, who's a contributing writer and author of the Peacefield Newsletter at The Atlantic. He is a former U.S. Naval War College University professor, and he previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. And his latest article in The Atlantic is, How Should the U.S. Respond to Putin's Nuclear Provocation? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether tonight's State of the Union address will be Biden's Ich bin ein Ukrainian moment. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's also the author and editor of nine books, most recently, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. And he's mentioned in an article at Courthouse News, Will the State of the Union be Biden's Ich bin ein Ukrainian. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Suri. Nice to be with you, Ian, as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. And of course, you're making a reference to JFK's famous speech in Berlin in 1963, where he said, Ich bin ein There's a kind of a, an apocryphal story that actually mispronounced it and said, I'm a jelly donut. But that turns out to be false, even though it seems to have had some legs. But if Biden were, I mean, he's no way he's not going to talk about Ukraine, right? Absolutely. I think Ukraine's going to be the center of the speech for two reasons. First of all, uh, what's happening there is the uh, most serious threat to our contemporary world order that we've seen in at least a half century. And it has occupied the attention, as nothing else has, of countries around the world and brought the Western alliance together and even brought some Republicans together with some Democrats in the United States. So uh, it is a transformative moment we're in. And second, it offers Biden an opportunity to show leadership. Um, Americans always want their president to be the leader of the free world, whatever that means. And this is a moment when he can stand up and talk about the things he's done through the release of intelligence before Putin's attack, through the efforts, uh, through sanctioning and other cooperative measures with our allies for the United States to reestablish itself as the leader of the free world. And, and I think Biden will talk about that and then talk about the other programs he cares about that matter for democracy that are connected to these issues because this is the defense of democracy in Ukraine, just as we have to defend democracy at home in the United States. 
So do you think that given that Minority Leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is already criticizing, as, as most of the Republicans are, Biden, in effect, blaming the invasion of Ukraine on Biden because he bungled the withdrawal from Afghanistan and he looks weak, etc. That seems to be the tactic that the Republicans are using. I mean, short of the few that actually support Putin outright, like Senator Ron Johnson and, <laughs> and of course, the former President Donald Trump. Yeah, they, they can carp all they want about uh, Afghanistan and other issues. But when Biden at the State of the Union tonight says, we are standing up against aggression in Ukraine, and this is the role the United States has played, will play, and will always play, they have to stand and cheer for that. If they don't, they will be the ones who look weak. When he says that I am working with our allies and NATO is stronger than it's ever been, and it's more important than ever that we work closely with our allies to stop aggression, they will have to stand up and cheer. So. Biden will get many bipartisan moments tonight, even if they're fleeting in, they will make Biden look like an effective president and it will make for good television for Biden's purposes. And do you think that he would, I mean, I'm pretty sure that he would prefer to be talking about his domestic successes and how money's coming out the door in terms of infrastructure and his earlier stimulus packages, etc and where we stand on the fight against COVID. I take it it's not mutually exclusive. He can still talk about Ukraine. He's got a lot of time, right? These speeches can go on for quite some time. <laughs> if he's like Bill Clinton, he'll never stop speaking. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, the, the, the truth is that this all fits together very well for him, and I'm sure his speech writers will do this. They'll say that the central issue of the speech is strengthening democracy abroad and at home. And we're fighting in Ukraine, not just for Ukraine, we're fighting to defend democracy in Europe. And there are things we have to do at home as well. And we've begun to do these things, and here's where he'll take credit, with infrastructure, with money for um, pandemic relief, uh, with efforts on his part to uh, empower local communities to deal with the issues that they're, that they're dealing with. He will talk about those successes, and then he will talk about the things we need to do that are part of his domestic program to further strengthen democracy. And he'll say that we're fighting for the right of Ukrainians to vote, and we need to protect the right of Americans to vote, too. And, and he'll make those connections time and again, I think. Well, it's pretty depressing to see the Ukrainians fighting and dying for democracy. And here at home in the United States, democracy is slipping through our fingers with massive voter suppression on the part of the Republicans, based upon Trump's big lie that he won the election and somehow it was stolen from him. And what, something like 80% of Republicans believe that. You're in the state of Texas, where there's a primary today, which is absolutely brazenly rigged. I mean, it's outrageous. Yep. Something like 46% of mail-in ballots have been rejected yep. in a cynical effort to suppress the Democratic vote. So do you think he's going to really go into that territory, or is he going to try and keep it a little more bipartisan? I think he will go into that territory because this is a winning issue for him right now. I mean, the, the Republican Party is associated with Vladimir Putin. Donald Trump continues to talk about Vladimir Putin. Ron Johnson continues to talk about Vladimir Putin. And as much as Mitch McConnell wants to talk about something else, uh, you as a party want to associate yourself with repressing the vote. And if you call repressing the vote the behavior of Vladimir Putin, you make it even more outrageous. 
Um, so I, I think this is a stick that Biden will use tonight. And it, it, it does it, it doesn't mean that voter suppression will end now, but it makes it harder for the Republicans to make this point. I mean, let, let's look back on the last four years. The Republicans can say whatever they want about Biden's weakness in Afghanistan. Time and again, Donald Trump did things to help Vladimir Putin. And these Republicans did nothing about it. Uh, and, and that's evident. And that will be in every advertisement for the next six months for every Democratic candidate. Donald Trump standing and praising Putin, Ron Johnson praising Putin. And, and you want to be seen praising the Hitler figure of your time. Uh, and that discredits their efforts at voter suppression. Uh, and so this is a strong argument now for, for Joe Biden. Well, I wonder what's going on with the Republican Party. They're looking more and more like, in fact, Putin's um, united Russia. I mean, yeah, yeah. they their primary function of the Republican Party and Putin's united Russia is to take care of oligarchs. And their primary activities are trolling, culture wars, and rewriting history. Yep. And all of that is happening here in the United States. And one of the more outrageous things that just happened today, there was an anti-lynching bill that passed overwhelmingly in the House, but there were three Republican House members that voted against it. Thomas Massey, the guy that did the Christmas card with every, all of your members of your family holding machine guns, and in your state, uh, you have Chip Roy, and yep. then you have also have Andrew Clyde, so of Georgia. So I sort of despair about the level of our discourse here with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others getting all the headlines on the Republican side. Do you expect anything to happen from that kind of caucus? I, I could call it the QAnon caucus, and I wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> no, you wouldn't be wrong at all. I, I, I think that uh, one of the things we might say in a few months is just as Putin has managed to unite NATO as no one could before, he maybe has been able to defeat Donald Trump as others couldn't. I mean, he, he has so discredited that group. It doesn't mean they're going to stop their antics. Um, but I think those are unelectable positions now. It doesn't mean they can't win in Marjorie Taylor Greene's gerrymandered district. But that is a huge liability for the Republicans to carry in state and national elections. We know what happened to all the people who associated themselves with fascism in the 1930s. They were fascist before that, before that association. Um, but there's no evidence that Vladimir Putin is popular in the U.S. There's no evidence that that will that will work. And they, I don't see how they squirm out of this. I think they're doubling down at a time now when uh, that's going to harm them. I, I think this might be the turning point. Ian. Well, in your article at Courthouse News, Jeremy Suri, will the State of the Union be Biden's Ukrainian? Ukrainian? You mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan's moments. I think Reagan, to some extent, started that what has become a kind of tradition of, of inviting people that are in the news or making news or people that associated with whatever point that the president's trying to make. I mean, the last one, of course, was Trump having uh, Rush Limbaugh in the balcony praising him. But is Biden going to have anybody, do you think, from the Ukrainian situation? Do you have any advanced knowledge of that? Who's going to be there? I know yeah. they're talking about it. I don't know what, what they landed on when we'll see, but I'm quite sure they will. Uh, my guess would be they'll have, um, well, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. And um, uh, they might have, uh, if there's some refugees, I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm quite sure they will. This is a tactic Reagan has used very effectively. 
uh, and many presidents thereafter to have guests in the um, president's uh, seats upstairs with, with the first lady who are heroes of the issues you're talking about, who will, again, draw a standing ovation. And every time there's a standing ovation from Democrats and Republicans and the president is standing at the front of the room, that makes him look presidential and strong. And so I'm sure they will do that. And whoever's not standing up and is sitting down, the camera's going to find them, right? I hope so. I hope so. So you don't want to suggest that, I'm sure you're not suggesting, Jeremy, that this is a blessing in disguise, this hideous war where innocent civilians are being killed. But, not at all. Not at all. No, this is, this is tragic. This is terrible. I, I, depressing. <laughs> right. No, but I'm thinking in terms of, of Biden's being sort of cast as a weak president and all this stuff. I mean, I can't see any, how they can make that case because he's, he's been really on top of this war. Absolutely. He, and, and he's been re- releasing the intelligence that proved to be incredibly accurate. Yeah. So I just don't know they have a case. No, I don't. Th- and I don't think it's compelling. And I don't think people are thinking about Afghanistan. But what people are thinking about is who are the people who have helped Putin, who helped him get this strong. And one of them is named Donald Trump. And uh, the other thing also that should be reminded, people should be reminded of, and it's easy to remind them of them. Um, Trump was trying to withhold the very defense weapons that are being used by the Ukrainians now, the Javelin anti-tank missiles. The whole impeachment was over Trump's effort to withhold those weapons until the Ukrainians helped him dig up dirt on Joe Biden. And it was because of democratic pressure that he was forced to release those weapons when he was impeached. Um, so, so everything the Ukrainians are doing now is a renunciation of what Donald Trump did. Boy, I hope Biden brings that up. It's a very strong point. And I thank you for joining us, uh, Jeremy Suri. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the author and editor of nine books, most recently The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. And he's mentioned in an article at Courthouse News, Will the State of the Union be Biden's Ich bin ein Ukrainian? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine